Good afternoon, everyone. I join Patrick in welcoming you um, to this event on behalf of the UC San Diego Libraries. Um, I know this is going to be an eye-opening talk. So we have uh, Steve Erie and Vladimir Kogan, two-thirds of the authors of this book, um, to talk with us about the provocative findings that you will um, see in that book. I had hoped to be able to say to those of you who don't want to take advantage of the better than Amazon price that you could check the book out from us, but you can't because it's already checked out and it's already been recalled by somebody else who wants it. So if you, if you want to check it out, you're going to be waiting a, l a little while and you might be well advised to take advantage of uh, this unique op opportunity today. Um, as some of you know, um, and no doubt many of you know, um, Professor Erie's books usually win awards for their insightful scholarship, and they also tend to get a lot of notice. Um, and in fact, they make waves, lots of waves, um, using um, language that we've become unfortunately all too familiar with. Um, in the case of Paradise Plundered, um, we're probably talking not just about a wave, but about a tsunami, uh, the epicenter of which is our very own city hall. So um, having said that, I want to reassure you that, and I think um, Steve will echo this, that this book is not about scapegoating um, the city's problems, but instead is about providing a roadmap of how we got into the mess we currently find ourselves in, and how we and other cities um, with similar problems um, can avoid these kinds of messes in the future. Let me give you a little background on our speakers. Um, Steve Erie is a professor of political science, an adjunct professor of history, and the director of UCSD's Urban Studies and Planning Program. He has his BA, MA, and PhD degrees from UCLA, where I worked for 15 years and has been the recipient of way too many awards and honors for me to mention here, including awards from the American Political Science Association, the American Sociological Association, the Historical Society of Southern California, and the Lambda International Land Economics Society. He has published four books uh, and is currently at work at another, uh, regarding the politics and policy making of water and power in Los Angeles, which, if any of you have been there recently, know is a big, big topic. Um, fortunately for us uh, and the greater San Diego community, Steve is the very opposite of an ivory tower academic. He is very active participant in policy debates concerning infrastructure, economic development, governance, public finance, and is recognized as the region's most astute and, dare I say, brutally honest observer on these issues. He has served on the California Governor's Commission on Building for the 21st Century, the Board of Directors of the LA Water and Power Associates, the City of San Diego Strong Mayor Committee, and the San Diego Regional Fire Safety Forum, among others. His colleague, Vladimir Kogan, uh, who is one of the two co-authors of the books, is a Ph.D. candidate here in the Department of Political Science. He has already authored several research articles in the California Journal of Politics and Policy, the Urban Affairs Review, and other scholarly journals. In 2009-10, he was a research fellow at the Lane Center 
for the American West at Stanford, and in 2010 was the recipient of the Emerging Scholar Award from the Urban Affairs Association. Before going back to school, and this is how some of us have gotten to know him, Vlad was a staff writer at The Voice of San Diego. So please join me in welcoming Steve Erie and Vladimir Koch. Thank you for that more than generous introduction. I also want to thank the UCSD library system for giving me the third and Vlad the first opportunity to talk about our books and their findings. I also want to thank the tenure system of the University of California <laughs> for insulating me from the slings and arrows of the displeased powerful. Vlad, you're on your own. <laughs> Vlad Scott, and by the way, the, the, the silent author here today, Scott McKenzie, is safely ensconced at UC Davis, a former graduate student here, now an assistant professor. He wishes us well. But Scott, Vlad, and I would also like to thank John Milton for the inspiration of our book title, Paradise Plundered, Milton's Paradise Lost, published in 1667, is an epic poem in blank verse concerning the story of the fall of man, the temptation of Adam and Eve by the fallen angel Satan, and their expulsion from the Garden of Eden. Paradise Plundered is about the fall of San Diego. Anyway, today Vlad and I will paint a dark picture of the city of San Diego's pension system, finances, and governance. I will be the portrait painter, presenting on a broad canvas an overview of the book's content and approach. Vlad will be the portrait painter, focusing on the growing crisis in the pension system in public finance and public services. He will also, and that's really chapter three, he will also look at the options for pension and fiscal reform that are currently out there. Like all of Gaul, the presentation is divided into three parts, which I just gave you. And you can't see it on this screen, so is the book. We've got eight chapters, but they're divided into three parts. Chapters one and two, sort of the overview and historical development. The focus of the book are chapters three, four, five, and six, and these are mounting ch policy challenges in the city of San Diego 1990 to 2010. Chapters 7 and 8, we call that the third part at the crossroads, look at the city in the context of the region, the broader San Diego, Baja, California region, and infrastructure challenges. And then finally, the last chapter sort of sums up what we've learned so far 
and looks at the various options and remedies now being proposed for fixing the pension system, city finances, and public services. Now, it's sort of important, before we absolutely finish with the table of contents, to consider that this book, like my last book, Beyond Chinatown, is a rumination on the Los Angeles-San Diego relationship, or lack thereof. The second chapter, notice the title, Never Never La La Land. We basically argue you cannot understand modern San Diego unless you understand the 19th century competition between them for infrastructure and regional hegemony. That meant railroads. Later it meant harbors. It meant water. But San Diego, in a sense, gets the United States Navy as a consolation prize because it loses sort of the industrialization sweepstakes to Los Angeles in the early 20th century. We come back to San Diego and L.A. in Chapter 7 because in many ways San Diego is intimately interconnected to infrastructure in L.A. Our international port is in L.A. and Long Beach. Our international, nearest really international airport is Los Angeles International. And, if you've been reading the papers recently, we're hooked up to a water system that Los Angeles and its suburbs created back in the late 1920s, the Metropolitan Water District. And there is a continuing family feud in terms of the distribution of benefits and burdens between San Diego and the other L.A.-based member agencies. So, a further overview of this book. You'll notice that we say San Diego, Sunshine, and Noir. Well, my colleague Mary Walshock will tell you the Sunshine story. <laughs> and that story is the story of entrepreneurship, innovation, the development of high-tech industries and firms, many of them spawned by this university. The Sunshine story is also the San Diego, the tourist sea, the beaches, the golf courses, a vibrant downtown, that's not the story we're telling. We're telling, I am from L.A. after all, the noir story, the dark civic reality, the government, the public sector, not the private sector side of the story. Now, you'll notice when I say gradations of governance failure. Look, th this book originally was going to be about governance challenges, and at the end we decided we'd call it governance failures, but it's really a gradient of failure. If you look at the core four chapters looking at the city, that is the pension and fiscal crisis, you look at the impact on public services and infrastructure, you looked at planning, and you look at redevelopment, San Diego style, you'll see that gradients of failure. The pension system, broken. Public finances, we were fined by the Security and Exchange Commission. People were indicted, tried. Now the bar in terms of the standard in criminal cases makes it difficult. But clearly something is seriously wrong with the pension system and public finances. 
But then you move down through the policy arenas to redevelopment. And the conventional wisdom is that San Diego is a tremendous success story with our peculiar institution, the Center City Development Corporation. No other California city has a separate nonprofit corporation focused upon downtown and capturing all of the tax increment benefits for downtown and not spreading them to the neighborhoods. And we'll talk about that. Petco Park and East Village also held up, right, uh, iconically as an example, right, of an entrepreneurial city, in a sense, revitalizing downtown as a success. What we do is we more closely examine the public benefits and costs. That is how much public investment in projects like Petco Park and East Village relative to public, not private. There's a lot of private benefit, but public benefit. Now, the significance of San Diego. Look, all you've got to do is open the paper today. Compton, Lamont Yule is up there now as the new city manager, was our former city manager. You know, they're circling and going down, down, down in terms of a budget deficit of monumental proportions. Vallejo is struggling in the third year of bankruptcy. What's different about San Diego? San Diego, we argue, is an early flashpoint in the national debate over public employee pensions, unions, and budget deficits. And that is certainly a story that resonates nationwide. What is the real story behind the city's pension liability and fiscal crisis? What we suggest is that to understand the current predicament that the city and its residents are in, you don't go just back to the 1990s in the city manager proposals to underfund the pension system. You have to go back to the 1970s to Proposition 13 passed by state voters in 1978 and the fiscal policies of iconic San Diego Mayor Pete Wilson. So we're sort of the canary in the cage, the first one down there, the, 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 the problem of pensions, budget deficits, certainly has gone statewide and nationwide. But what's important about San Diego is that it's been doing it longer than most. So we've got a track record to be able to extract lessons from. Okay, our approach, and, and we're actually missing... Everything here is in three parts. We're missing the third part. I'll I'll just ad lib. Look, this is a case study. In social science, we don't think much of case studies because you can't do what we call causal or explanatory analysis. So what we've done is we've souped up this case study. It's a case study plus. We have put San Diego in both historical and comparative perspective. What do I mean by that? That is, we go back like in terms of voting on taxes, bonds. We go back to the 1960s, pre-Proposition 13 and 1978. We do a pre, a before-after test to look at what the impact of institutions may be. We also benchmark San Diego 
with the other leading, the other top ten California cities in terms of spending, pensions, voting records, the, <coughs> the salaries of public employees. And to be fair, we throw out San Francisco. Not that it's left coast city, but it's a combined city county, so its finances throw everything. They're really off the chart. But we're comparing it with Anaheim, Long Beach, San Jose, Los Angeles. And that comparison allows us to begin to make arguments about the impact of things like leadership and institutions, our so-called explanatory variables. Now, the second part of our approach. This is primary research. This book took at least, it's, it's the last five years of my life, the last, what, three years of your life, five of Scott's. This book took a long time to develop. One is San Diego is an understudied city. There is not much of a secondary literature on San Diego. Well, hopefully with Paradise Plundered, San Diego has arrived. Secondly, we had to do an enormous amount of fieldwork and original research. We interviewed 35 or 40 community civic leaders from the left, from the right, different points of view, very, very candid interviews. But I don't know, in the publishing business at Stanford, the lawyers run it. Brian, I couldn't even use your name in an endnote without having a signed waiver form, i.e., a get-out-of-jail-free, no liability. Uh, but people were more than willing to share, I think, extraordinary. There's a candidness to the interview material. We, and I'm using the real we because most of it was Vlad, had to go through the Kroll report, if you you know, how many, how, many, how many dollars per page that one was? All of the public documents, right, uh, that have sort of made things up. And then the third part of our approach, not mentioned up there, is we were participant observers. I have been an active and engaged citizen in governance debates, like over the strong mayor system, or as I like to call it, the not-so-strong mayor system. <laughs> Infrastructure debates are perpetual debate about whether we'll ever have an international airport at Miramar or any other place. Water debates, Vlad's been involved in public finance and redevelopment so, uh, debates. So in a sense, this is based upon lived experience for us. Now, San Diego government, and I'm going to speed things up now, large and small. There's a paradox to San Diego government. There are really two faces of governance in the city of San Diego. There's big government and there's little government. And here we're just comparing, right, the investments downtown. That's big government. That's the Center City Development Corporation with small or little government. What's happening out in the neighborhoods? I want to repeat it. You can see it up here. Uh, we'll have this posted in no time immediately afterwards. But just an example of the paradox or the disparity between what's happening to the library system downtown as opposed to uh, in the neighborhoods. And we argue that big government delivers narrow concentrated benefits to the few, 
such as developers. And we have small government, limited government, limited public services delivering benefits to the many. That's the neighborhoods, the community, and the puzzle is why. The conventional wisdom, and we'll give it from both the right and the left, conservatives and liberals. Well, conservatives like Councilman uh, Carl DeMaio say, the problem with city government, it's in the pocket of greedy public employees, their union bosses. The solution, pension reform, looks like it's going to be on the ballot, and outsourcing, i.e. managed competition. Uh, Liberals, progressives, public officials, particularly are corrupt, bought by developers and special interests. The solution, elect different politicians like Councilwoman (coughs) Donna Fry. And then everybody seems to agree in this town that there's too much waste, fraud, and abuse run government like a business. But this is sort of the conventional wisdom from various points of view of what's wrong. Now, we explain things a little bit differently, partly because we put on our hats as political scientists, and we say, what do rational public officials, politicians, do under a series of constraints. And these constraints are sort of the drivers of policy outcomes. And we've got three of them, political culture, leadership, and institutions. And they profoundly frame, right, how we approach and resolve issues pertaining to the pension, pertaining to public finance and services, and to governance. Now, political culture. Let's take a look at that. We were amazed. When we benchmarked San Diego with the other California big cities, we were amazed at how much less we pay and receive than the average. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't a few big California cities down by us, but you look at an average. We right now spend per resident on basic city services 50% less than the average of the other California big cities, throwing the city-county of San Francisco out. There is enormous distrust of local government. In fact, uh, studies that have been done across the country, San Diego is right up at the top in terms of uh, high levels of distrust. And, of course, there's a great irony here because San Diego was built by big government. The federal government, the United States Navy, state government, this university, San Diego State, the community colleges, you know, there is a healthy infusion of public investment that made this town what it is. But in terms of local government, high distrust. And this has given rise to uh, a, a kind of politician in San Diego that we call the new fiscal populist, Mayor Jerry Sanders and others, that basically we... They may be socially libertarian. They want to deliver services to citizens, but they don't want to push the envelope in terms of asking the residents of San Diego to actually pony up and pay for the services that they want. And that seems to be the dominant kind of politician in San Diego. Now, the other interesting thing about San Diego that we looked at is what we call, ultimately, we call it the two constituencies problem. As San Diego annexed back in the 50s and 60s and took in places like Rancho Bernardo, we brought much of the initial suburban development within city limits. So we have a conservative, 
high propensity voting suburban population north of Interstate 8, a lower propensity voting urban population south of 8. The question is, can they agree on much in terms of public finance and services? Leadership. Well, we say non-existent in the public sector. San Diego, since Pete Wilson, and that's now pushing 30 years, excels in what we call followership rather than leadership. Which way is the wind blowing this day? But we also focus on the private sector. And, you know, San Diego is, has been for a while, a quintessentially branch plant town. That is, not many corporate headquarters. Remember, we had, Sempra had to come here from Los Angeles when the gas company merged with San Diego Gas and Electric because it was a point of pride that we would have a Fortune 500 corporation headquartered here rather than in La La Land. So the thing is, though, branch plant managers don't get involved and and national and multinational corporations don't pony up and fund in terms of foundations, philanthropy, the way that homegrown corporations do in cities like Pittsburgh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and other places like that. There are few incentives to participate in local politics, partly because branch plant managers, for the most part, are just passing through. We also have an oversized reliance on the tourist industry, which, given the fact, right, that, that the beneficiaries of that industry mostly come from other places, right, they have a different set of interests than industries and firms that are grounded here. Okay, and then finally, political institutions. Direct democracy. We have things, as you probably know, if you are a single-family homeowner, you don't pay for trash collection in San Diego. It's the People's Ordinance of 1919, and I've gotten into more than one argument about, well, I pay property taxes. Well, let me tell you something. Those property taxes pay maybe 5% of the true cost of trash collection. People in apartments, commercial firms, they have to pay for property tax, I mean, pay for trash collection, but not if you're a single family homeowner. 17% of the property tax bill in San Diego goes to the city of San Diego if you're a city resident. Much of it goes to the school districts, and Vlad will talk a little bit about that. In other words, we, and, and in places like Los Angeles, 26% of property taxes collected go to the city of L.A. In many other large California communities, it's 30 to 35 percent. We're really on the low end. That is, we city services are much less funded by property taxes. School districts are much better funded in San Diego. You know, it's just a question of how the pie is divided between city, county, and special districts. And of that 17 percent that goes into the general fund, only a small proportion of it, right, goes for things like property taxes. That's direct democracy. And then Proposition 13, Vlad will be talking about this. I don't know if it's a prohibitive bar, but a very high bar. Just briefly, since 1995, 
with the two-thirds vote required for most, not all, but most tax increases, general obligation bond votes. In the other California big cities, that's in the last 15, 16 years, 60% of tax increases and bond measures have been approved, even with that high bar. You know what the figure is in San Diego? Nada. Zero. Zed. What is that all about? Anyway, I now turn it over to the portrait artist, Vlad Kogan. Thank you very much. So one of the things that motivates the book and the puzzle that Steve t- told you about is there's a sense in San Diego that we're a city in decline. And you get a sense of that by comparing basic service levels for core services that constituents and residents really care about. And so in this chart, we compare just a couple of these services over the last 10-year period. And what you see is a dramatic decline in basic city services over that period. So library hours have been cut in, in the neighborhoods have been cut by about 25%. Recreation center hours have been cut by a third. And, there, and other sorts of city services, core city services like paving of streets, have gone down dramatically. And citizens and residents see this every day as they drive on the streets, as they go to the library, and as they go to the, uh, to the recreation centers. And the answer, the story for why this has been going on, is it's clear if you read the paper. The reason why we're spending less on libraries less on streets, is that we're spending more on public pensions. And you see that by comparing the portion of the city budget, the day-to-day budget that pays for city services, and what percent of that budget goes towards retiree benefits for city employees. So about 15 years ago, the city was paying about 5% of its budget into pensions, and today we're paying close to a quarter of our budget on pensions alone. And of course, if the size of the budget doesn't go up, and the size of the pension slice goes up, everything else has to shrink to make up the difference. Now, these cuts have been particularly painful in San Diego because for a long time, the city has had lower service levels than other major California cities. And that trend really dates back to the late 1970s to the passage of Prop 13 and how our city responded versus other cities. And so you see this this chart where we track total city spending uh, per resident over this period in in constant dollars. And you see, starting in the 1970s, there's a big divide where the rest of California grows fast and San Diego keeps growing, but not quite as fast. And over that 20-year period, we see a very sharp disconnect between the service levels in the city and the service levels in other major California cities. And so why, why are we spending a quarter of our budget to pay for public pensions? And the, the short answer is that there's a massive financial liability. So today, the benefits that we've promised to our city employees and the amount of money we've set aside to pay for them don't add up. And in fact, the amount of benefits we've promised is about $2 billion more than the amount of money we set aside to pay for them. And that doesn't include the retiree health benefits, which we promised city employees as well. And so the, the short answer is we're paying more because we owe a lot. But we argue that the pension crisis is not the, the key cause of our, of our problems in the city. It's only the most proximate cause. And to understand why we have a fiscal crisis, to understand why we have a pension crisis, you really have to go back to the 1970s and really look at the decisions that were made and understand why they were made in the way that they were. So the story really starts out in the 1970s. And up until late 1970s, the city of San Diego had 
essentially two property taxes. There was a property tax that you paid that went into the city to finance city services, and there was a separate smaller property tax that you paid that was specifically earmarked to pay for pensions. And in the 1970s, late 1970s, we had a very high rise in property values, and there was a lot of concern about property taxes being unaffordable, which gave rise to to a big movement to limit them. And in the city, this movement, uh, one of the results of this movement was that Mayor Pete Wilson eliminated one of these property taxes. So we no longer had a dedicated revenue stream to pay for pensions, and now we were paying for pensions out of the regular city budget. So we created a zero-sum game, right? Any dollar that went to pensions was a dollar that we could not use to pay for city services. And shortly after we made this decision, Prop 13 was passed, and our property taxes were frozen at the level that they were in 1978 with some uh, small allowance for inflation. And so at at this time, we had lower taxes, and so our taxes were frozen at those lower levels relative to all the other cities, which made the impact of Prop 13 and the problems later down the line more serious here than elsewhere. So revenue was frozen, but city spending and the demands of constituents were not. So how does a city, how does San Diego, and how do its elected officials deal with this reality? That citizens want more police, they want more firefighters, but we don't have the revenue to pay for them. Well, one solution that the city came up with was to leave Social Security. So up until the 1980s, city employees got Social Security, they got Medicare, and as as all of you know, we pay for those through a payroll tax. Half of that tax you as the employee pay, and half that tax the employer pays. And so during this period, the city was paying about 5% of its payroll to Social Security. And Pete Wilson had a great idea and said, you know, why don't you guys leave Social Security? That will free up some money for us because we won't have to be contributing to payroll taxes. And that will also help you because your take-home pay is going to go up because you won't have to be contributing to Social Security as well. And to make the deal sweeter, to make it worth your while, if you do this, we're going to give you free health care for life. So you won't have to worry about not having Medicare because the city of San Diego will provide the health care for you. The problem is that we never actually set aside any money to pay for this promise, this health care guarantee. And as a result, we today have a $800 million liability. Now, over the years, the city employees retired. We have to pay for their health care because we promised it. And we didn't have any money, so in the early 1980s, the decision was made to start using pension money, money that was not ever set aside or, or planned to be used on retiree health care to pay for this benefit. And to do this, the city came up with, a, with an interesting system. So the way we finance pensions is we as taxpayers put aside money every year. The city's pension system invests that money. And then over time, due to the magic of compound interest, we have a lot to pay the benefits when employees retire. And so to make this actuarially sound, to make this work in the long term, the city retirement system has to make a certain amount of investment returns every year. And so the long-term expectation is that we'll make about 8% a year. Now, again, this is the long-term expectation. In some years, we have a good year, the economy is doing well. In some years, we have a bad year, and the economy is not doing so well. Well, in the early 1980s, the city council made a decision that if we're having a good year and we make more than 8% a year, we're going to decide anything over that 8% is surplus earnings. It's surplus, and we're going to use it for something else. So we're going to take some of that money out of the pension system and use that to pay for retiree health care. We're going to take some of that money, and we're going to use that to reduce our regular pension bill. And that will free up money in the city budget to pay for other stuff that constituents want. And we're going to use some of that money to also increase retiree benefits for current retirees. 
And so we promised uh, employees retiree health care. We didn't pay for it. We took a lot of money out of the pension system to do it. And we took a lot of money out of the pension system to pay for other stuff as well. And so, as you can imagine, over the long term, this was not a sound, sound plan. And we saw, that we saw the long-term implications starting in the 1990s. So there was a big recession after the end of the Cold War. Our economy locally depends a lot on defense spending, and that defense spending uh, was cut. And so there was a uh, budget crisis in the city in the early 1990s. We also had a very entrepreneurial mayor, Merrick Golding, who really wanted to be Senate, a senator from California. And she thought that the way she was going to run for office and the way she was going to be successful was to have a record of big accomplishments. So what were some of the things she wanted to do? Well, in 1996, there was a presidential election, and Susan Golding really wanted to have the Republican convention in San Diego because it was going to put San Diego on the national stage and it was going to put her on the national stage. But to do that, you have to find money to pay for overtime for cops, right, who we needed to police the streets. She wanted to also build a big ballpark downtown for the Padres. And again, to pay for a ballpark, we have to find money to do it. So how do, we, how do we make this happen, even as our city is going through a fiscal crisis due to the recession and our revenues are going down? And so during the same period, the city was negotiating with, with its employees, and there was evidence that city employees were underpaid relative to other cities in the county, and they also were not going to be happy unless they got raises. And if we didn't give them raises, we're going to have a serious recruitment and retention problem. All of our seasoned cops and firefighters were going to leave and go elsewhere. So... All these things are happening at the same time, and the city manager at the time and the pension system come up with a plan to deal with all these problems together, and it's called Manager's Proposal 1. And so instead of pay increases, we told city employees, you know, we're going to keep your pay where it is, but instead we'll give you an increase in your retirement benefits. So you'll still get more money, but you'll get it later when you retire instead of getting it now. And in exchange, city employees, whose unions control the majority of the pension board, we're going to let the city contribute less into the pension system. And you, as you can imagine, this is problematic. We're promising higher benefits, but we're also contributing less into the system. Uh, and in exchange, the city is going to use the savings to do other things that it wants, to pay for those cops to host the convention, to free up some money to build a ballpark. And there was a provision built into this agreement that said, you know, we're going to underfund the system. You're going to let us do it. But if things get really, really bad, if the system gets really underfunded, we're going to make one massive lump sum payment, right, like a subprime mortgage. So for a while, you get to make those minimum payments, and then a couple of years down the road, when things get bad, you'll, the city will pay whatever it takes to bring the system back up to sound financing. And of course, this happened in the early 2000s, where we had another recession, and the investments of the pension system were hit very hard. And that trigger, that level in the agreement was breached, and the city was on the hook to make a massive payment into the pension system. Well, as you can imagine, there's a recession going on, and this is the year in which the city has the least amount of money to actually make that payment because our revenues have gone down as well. Property taxes have fallen because property values have fallen. Sales taxes have fallen because people are spending less. And so we're on the hook to make a massive payment. What do we do? And so the city came up with another plan. It's called Manager's Proposal 2. And essentially, the, the crux of this plan was that the city was not going to make a lump sum payment. Not only that, but it was going to start contributing even less into the pension system to, to help deal with the pain in the city budget because we're, we're laying off cops, we're closing programs because our revenues have fallen. And how do we get the pension system to approve this? Well, we promised city employees who are on the pension board a benefit increase yet again. So we give them higher benefits and we contribute even less into the pension system. 
So over this 20-year period, we make a series of deals where essentially we trade higher benefits in exchange for lower contributions. And over time, we build up a pretty massive pension liability that today totals more than $2 billion. So you might say, well, there was a couple of components to these deals. There was underfunding on the part of the city, and there was these retroactive benefit increases that we gave to city employees in 1996 and again in 2001. Well, what was, what's the main problem? What's the main cause of this liability? So last year, the city retirement system hired an outside actuary to try to figure this out. And one thing that we've learned is that only about 15% of this, of this unfunded liability is due to the benefit increases that we gave city employees during those two years. And this is important because a lot of the debates that we see today about uh, in the mayoral campaign and also over the proposed pension reform initiative really focus on benefits and benefit increases as the sole and leading cause of this pension liability and this fiscal pain that we're seeing today, which the numbers don't support. Now, a huge part of the story is financial losses and investment losses. So a lot of our assets in the pension system are invested in the stock market. And as you can imagine, over the last couple of years, those investments have not done well. And not only have we not made the 8% that we expect to make, but we lost money. In fact, in 2008, we actually lost about a quarter of our entire portfolio when the market collapsed. And so the biggest driver is investment losses. The second biggest driver is our decision to underfund for 20 to 30 years benefits and pay retiree health care out of the pension system. And finally, probably the smallest component is the benefit increases. So what do we do? How do we deal with this problem? Well, one solution is we go after the city employees and we cut benefits. And I would argue that there's probably not a lot of concessions left that we can, we can squeeze out because over the last couple of years, city employees have already, already made a significant number of concessions. Many of them are paying more for their pensions. We have a two-tier pension system now where new city employees uh, get a much less generous pension. In fact, uh, a pension that's even less generous than the one we, the one we had in 1996. And so... New hires today already get lower benefits. They pay more. And the problem is that that does absolutely nothing to help us with our pension liability because the liability is for current employees, and it's for benefits that they've already earned. And so it's not clear that we can legally cut those benefits uh, without a protracted legal battle. So how do how do, how does some people propose to do this? Well, there's going to be a ballot initiative on the ballot in June, and essentially, what it proposes to do is to shift new employees to a 401k system, which, again, is going to produce no, no savings because the pension they currently have is already relatively inexpensive. Uh, but also, it's going to require city employees to have a five-year pay freeze, at least a five-year pay freeze on the portion of their salary that's used to calculate pensions. And so this would produce significant savings, but also a lot of other consequences for recruitment and retention, particularly for very high-skilled positions like city engineers and firefighters and police officers who may have better options elsewhere in the county if we're the only city doing this. So another study, another solution that may make sense given, given the history that Steve's told you is maybe we can just increase revenues to at least take so, to, to fix some of the pain. Uh, and we know for, 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 through a variety of sources, a lot of studies that the city commissioned, that other people commissioned, that our revenues are relatively low, our taxes are low, but to raise those taxes because of Prop 13 and because of successor initiatives, we need a vote of the people. And given the recent past, it's going to be very, very difficult to get the people of San Diego to agree to increase their taxes. And we saw some of this last year uh, with Proposition D, which is a sales tax increase, and it went down in flames. 
And so the only way tax increases are going to fall, are going to, tax increases are going to pass, is if we have political support not only from, from public officials, many of whom do not support tax increases, but also from a business community. And as we saw in Prop D, some of the leading uh, interests that oppose this tax increase were real estate industry, restaurant industry, and car dealerships, because they were the industries that would have gotten hit the most with the sales tax increase. So it's going to be very difficult to pass, and given this massive pension liability, it's going to be a very difficult public relations problem, because how do you get city residents to pay higher taxes when, looking down the road, they expect all of that new money to be eaten up by a higher pension payment? So they're going to pay more, and they're not going to get anything for it. So maybe the solution is to file for bankruptcy. And there are some folks out there, like former city attorney Micah Geary, who advocate this. Uh, and this solution, too, is problematic for, in other ways. So first, it's not clear that we're actually insolvent in the way that the bankruptcy law defines insolvency. And more importantly, even if we are, it's not clear that bankruptcy court and bankruptcy judges have the authority to cut retiree health care and retiree pensions, which is, again, the main source of our pension problems and our fiscal problems in the city. And if they did do this, one thing that the bankruptcy law says is you have to be fair. So if you're going to cut somebody, you have to cut everybody. So bankruptcy is not, not a scalpel. It's really more like a machete. Right? So if you go after pension benefits, you're going to go after everybody else, including people that own city bonds. And so there's going to be a lot of pain for a lot of people other than city employees. And more importantly, just a couple weeks ago, the governor signed a new law that essentially makes municipal bankruptcy in California very, very difficult to do. So perhaps the solution is, you know, we can't raise revenue. We can't cut pay for current employees. We can't go bankrupt. Maybe we'll just, we should just outsource the whole city and have the private sector do the job. And so there's, there's, there's some evidence in the literature, and if you look at other cities that outsource, that, that this is a way to realize some savings. But the problem with a lot of this literature and a lot of these studies is they focus on successes. So they pick out the cases where cities save a lot of money through outsourcing, and they throw out all the cases where cities actually end up spending more when they outsource. And so if you take, look at the whole universe of cases, about a quarter of all cities that decide to outsource, actually a few years later, then decide to insource again because they realize that they actually outsourcing was a bad deal and cost them more. And one thing that we know is that to do outsourcing right, to do it well, you need to have very, very good, very tight contracts that define exactly what we want, exactly what service levels have to be maintained, and we have to have very good oversight to make sure that our private sector partners are doing what they promised. And in the city, we don't have a very good record of writing good contracts or the infrastructure to, of enforcing them well. So we have this massive liability. We have a lot of pain for all city residents. What's the conclusion? What's the takeaway from, from our talk, at least? There's a lot more in the book that is perhaps less pessimistic. Well, who deserves the blame for the problems that we have in the city? And there's certainly a lot of blame to go around, but we argue the main perpetrators, the main criminals are really the people here in the audience, and the people more broadly, it's the voters. And so for a long time, city officials have used the pension system to fund city services, to fund other sorts of things, because this was the only way they can find the revenue they needed to deliver the voters what the voters wanted, which was more services. And given this reality, any solution going forward, any way to solve this problem is going to be painful. It's going to be painful for everybody. So it's not only going to be painful for city employees, who are certainly going to have to make more concessions, but it's going to be, more pain it's going to be painful for city residents who are going to see their service levels cut into the, in the near future. And 
I can tell you that this is a reality, and, and, and there's a lot of candidates who are running for mayor that tell you that this is not the case. They'll tell you, if you elect me, I have the leadership skills. I will sit down with the labor unions, and I will stare them down and negotiate, and we'll find a way to fix this where not only will you not have to pay any more, you won't have to see your library hours cut, but you'll have even more services. And we want to suggest that this is probably not the case, and this is probably not a realistic uh, strategy going forward for the city. So thank you.